Welcome to the podcast in search of the perfect movie soundtrack. When the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Joshua Weber. I'm Matt Lombardi. Hi, I'm Heather Samples. Join us this week as we discuss all things cool. Whether Pulp Fiction is still cool, whether Vanilla Ice was ever cool, are cool cigarettes the ultimate cool? And whatever happened to that kid from the movie Parenthood whose loser deadbeat dad thought it was a good idea to name his kid Cool? Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. Pride only hurts, it never helps. In the fifth, your ass goes down. I have to say, play with matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns for this kind of a deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that night. Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Get down, get down. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in a garage. Take me to it. On this episode, we'll be discussing the famous and infamous 1990s culture bomb, Pulp Fiction. Yes. And um, culture bomb, I just made that up. Uh, I mean, a culture it, it bomb. It sounds yeah. like a website <laughs> was... from like maybe, you know, 2003 or something. <laughs> it was like a yeah, culture bomb. Okay. I think that the allusion to violence is appropriate <laughs> for this movie. Right. And then before we start, I would just like to say, any of you fucking pricks moving on execute every left motherfucker. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's should yes. we just jump right in? Yeah, let's do it. 1994, Pulp Fiction comes out, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, of course, wins a bunch of festival awards, has a big opening weekend. The critics gush over it, and this is a fun fact I learned, it's the first indie movie to gross more than $100 million. But it does not have a music score at all, but a curated and eclectic soundtrack of old and a couple of new radio hits. It goes platinum. It goes triple platinum in like the U.S. and a dozen countries. Bull and the Gang has a resurgence. Commercials start playing surf music. And it's just a soundtrack firing on all cylinders. So my question to you is 28 years later for a movie that traded very heavily in pop culture intensity, is Pulp Fiction still cool? You said that as though it was necessarily cool the first time around. Which I think, I like, I know that... You are on record I, I know, saying how I know, cool it is. I know, I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. I, 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 I actually don't personally disagree with that assessment. But I think that there probably were plenty of people who were themselves quite cool who did not think Pulp Fiction was cool in the moment. I just want to, like, hold a, a, some yeah. space for that, uh, for that opinion of the movie because it's... Probably not a bad opinion. <laughs> I definitely thought the movie was cool at the time. I definitely saw the poster on the freshman dorm walls of every boy <laughs> I was interested in. Nice. Um, and I had a Pulp Fiction poster in high school in my bedroom. Okay, so all of the boys that I was interested in and also Matt. <laughs> um, Walked right into that one, Matt. He really did. He like teed it right up for me. Um but and but in watching it this week, I have to say, I w- I was finding it very hard to like it. 
um, which is a different question than is it still cool, I guess. I, I did not think it was very cool. I, I had to try very hard to remember how different the world was 28 years ago mm-hmm. and and how hard it is for 2022 me to look at this movie how? in any kind of fair to its mo- own moment light. What was your reaction when you realized it was 28 years ago? It, it does. It's not surprising to me that it was almost thirty years ago. It feels yeah. like thirty years ago. Um, while while you're answering right. the question, Heather, of whether it's cool or not, I was wondering. You, you, I you talked about your um, daughter finding memes of it or knows about memes of it. Did she watch the movie with you? <laughs> you know, this is funny because uh, I would love to know what a whether a thirteen year old yeah. 13? 13, 13, whether a thirteen yeah. year old yeah, yeah. thinks this movie is cool or not. I would love to know that question. So yes, you know, this is great. <laughs> Good research. Ever. So every few, she wasn't like parenting. Not, I don't know. She wasn't really watching, right? Uh, she was just kind of doing her own. thing She should be seventeen. But every time an iconic image would come up on the screen, she'd be like, "Wait, there's a meme of that guy," <laughs> and then she would like show us on her phone. Um, and you can guess what all of them were, right? There's it yeah. features a lot of Samuel L. Jackson, a lot of the word motherfucker, like uh, the Vince the, and Vega looking around back confused and forth. GIF. Yes. That's exactly. a great gift. Yeah, yeah. Um but but so <laughs> she was like sort of into it. And you know, almost all of it she was kind of like turning over and making suspicious eye contact with me when when things took mm. place yeah. but the, the one moment when she actually like put her devices away closed them for a second was what is in the fucking case <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and i was like well yeah i don't i don't think if I recall correctly, we, we actually don't learn what's in the case. And then she was like, fuck this. This is bullshit. Yeah. I'm not watching so, any movie that <laughs> or demands that I not care I, what's in the case. I don't know gi- that I disagree with her on that. But does its giffiness credit it as something still cool then? Is that part of the answer? I don't think so. I think it credits it as something uh, that's so known that it can activate mm, yeah. that, mm. uh, that part of what we need in a meme. Yeah. Well, before I say my Joshua, what do you think? Still cool? Never cool? I don't know. There's so much loaded into my mind when it comes to this film and Quentin Tarantino. I don't know that I can see a clear path to any sort of question like that. There's a, an argument I had with a friend of mine um, about the nature of cool. And he was the kid in high school who uh, was very popular and he dressed basically like Vanilla Ice. And I I <laughs> went to the same high school with him, and I did not think that a dude who dressed like Vanilla Ice was cool. And which made you cool, Joshua? Just so you I know, I liked to think, <laughs> even at the time as a young man, I liked to think that there was a more sort of eternal sense of cool. Years later, we talked about it, and he says, "No, I every girl liked me. I was popular. I was cool." And I was like, well, yes, every girl liked you. You were popular, but you looked like an idiot. And I don't think you looked cool. And I think that there's a larger arc to cool. If I if I was if I was more prepared for this, I could have prepared something about the arc of the universe bends towards uh, blue jeans mm-hmm. and t-shirts or something like that. I don't know. But but anyway, so there's an argument, I guess, of like, if something is cool in its moment, is it cool or is cool something that is a little bit more uh that the through line goes through decades and cool, if coolest coolest timeless and trendiness isn't i think you're you're like separating you're you're identifying the difference between being on trend and being cool 
And your friend who's dressed like Vanilla Ice is popular because he's on trend and he's maybe taking some risks that are interesting. But that doesn't make him timelessly cool. I'll give you a follow-up question then based on your answer. Pulp Fiction is not actually on trend to 94. Pulp Fiction creates a trend of 1994. So if you you create a trend, is that cool? And I don't know that I have an answer to this, but but if you created the trend, if you are the, the trendiest, you're like, you're the trendsetter of an entire era, Maybe that's cool. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's worth wondering about. I think Pulp Fiction is the mainstream version of postmodernism entering the mainstream film world. I think that's because totally fair. I, I, the critics yeah. go nuts about it. I was going back, and I don't know if you want to get into this now, uh, Joshua, from Ebert to Janet Maslin to the only people who criticized it were saying, oh, it's, it's culturally slumming or these kind of weird like moral arguments. But everyone was just bowled over by basically how postmodern and outrageous and energetic and lawless it felt at the time. I was just watching um, an episode of At The Movies, and this must have been, I don't remember what year Siskel died, but the the co-host was Scorsese. So it's Ebert and Scorsese, and it's the end of the 90s, and they're doing their top 10 films of the 90s. And with Scorsese sitting right next to him, Ebert picked uh, Goodfellas third. (laughs) <laughs> number, number two of Wow, the 90s. some real big dick energy from Ebert. I know, right? And I was like, damn, dude. They're like, buddies he's right too, here. aren't they friends? He can hear you. He's literally looking at you. And the um, <laughs> uh, number two is Pulp Fiction. And worth noting, I think, is number one is Hoop Dreams, which is a movie that kind of, we all that know that amazing. movie basically because Ebert and Siskel discussed discovered it essentially i mean the 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 filmmakers will tell you this story that that they found this movie you know this little documentary made in chicago and siskel and ebert basically are the reason it was at the time the 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 first documentary that made really really big money and this big hit movie those guys say they owe their whole careers to ebert and siskel so that's a real passion movie for him so it's not surprising it's number it's it's number one, which is to just say that, yeah, that's his top movie, ahead of Goodfellas. And yeah. um, by the way, ahead of, I don't think... just to give you a couple other examples, ahead of Fargo, ahead of uh, Breaking the Waves. What? I mean, he's got it. He's got it all the way up there. I don't think we can overstate yeah. how original and crazy Pulp Fiction was when it arrived. I mean, I was 14. No, it was, it was like, I looked it up. It was October. I just turned 15. And it literally just instantly changed the way I looked at culture. Because uh, a good movie to me, I love like, you know, Lethal Weapon or something. Action movies and then like a heartfelt movie that made me like feel emotions and think was like Dead Poets Society. And then this comes along and it literally like blows blows my mind. I see Reservoir Dogs because I rent it hearing about all the stuff about Pulp Fiction. Haven't seen it yet, but I, I see Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction the same year. And I have a completely new view of um, culture. I mean, I think that happened to pretty much everybody to some degree or another, um, and that's kind of why why it is what it's it is. It's really wild, because it, you watch it now, and we'll, we'll talk about its flaws and, I guess, what people were looking for, but, like, we hadn't 
completely crossed over this line into like wild reference postmodern insanity yet. And and this was a good launching pad to it. And I don't know if Quentin Tarantino was just there at the right time and feeling it, or if he helped invent it, or it was just happening anyway, and he was like, I'm a cool dude living on the coast. This is what it's about now. I have no I have no idea. But just to keep it on the music, is there any instance, this is what we're talking about, is there any instance of any song in the movie being more than just retro or cool? Because, you know, the history of film and music is music is emotional or, you know, gives characters these moments or it's sweeping or whatever. His music just seems to be being really cool. Right, but I, I wonder about the question a little bit because the implication is that the music all feels retro all the time. And I don't know that I necessarily read it that way. I, I don't, I mean, Dick Dale, yes, it is retro. Yes, it is an old surf song. In the moment when it happens, I wasn't thinking about the 1960s surf movement. It feels... The twist, really? Like, yeah, it feels I, I like the Joshua. movie. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel... There are times when some of the songs, I mean, obviously he mines retro stuff they go to a damn 50s diner i mean obviously he's doing that but the, i don't feel like all the songs come on and i'm like drifting back into you know the past like a force gump for instance which is playing on nostalgia i don't oh, feel yeah. like it's maybe doing i'm that. using so okay. i don't know that it that it is using songs in that way necessarily i didn't mean it's creating nostalgia i mean one of the things i think is a great trick that if you can put your mind back to 1994 is he took Surf music was, was just this kind of like hokey thing that maybe you heard your dad listen to and it only spoke to a time. And all of a sudden, like the opening track, Misru, it was filled with like fear and menace and an underground seediness and violence to a surf track. So should we get to some specifics of the actual tracks? All right. So specific song. Before I'm going to hear what you guys want to focus on, but I feel like just to get out of the way, this is filled with, you know, seventies hits, some fifties stuff, uh, a couple of new songs, but five of the songs on the soundtrack are surf music. Um, and it opens with Miserloo, Dick Dale and his Deltones, which is now, forever tied to Pulp Fiction to me when I think when anyone hears it and there's a few others busting surfboards by the tornadoes Bullwinkle part two by the Centurions Surfrider by the Lively Ones and then Comanche by the Revels which off air me and Joshua were chatting about because Comanche is the infamous surf rock song that's playing in the really ridiculous rape scene And Joshua, do you want to go to the background of that? Like the the re the other song that he originally wanted to go with was this is this I just I just saw this today. It is shocking. Do you know this other? Okay, so you know when Bruce Willis goes in to murder everybody as they're sexually abusing Marcellus yes. Wallace. I remember that scene. <laughs> you do remember that scene. Just, just want to make sure because it, it would have been easy to like you know maybe you pick up your phone, miss it for a minute. Anyway, it has this kind of wild, kind of zany, kind of scary surf song in it. 
And Quentin Tarantino, I was going to make a multiple choice because he had a different 80s pop song in mind that he wanted to use. And he said the one of the guys in the band, he says, I don't know, was a born again Christian or something and didn't option it to him. I just looked up this. I just looked up the song, and the song is a 1970s song, right at the tail end. So it does fit into the 70s um, category of the rest of the I show. I thought it was in eight. Was it re-released in the I 80s? I mean, it was probably a hit for a long time. It was "My Sharona" by the Knack. What? Can you imagine that? Like, imagine that scene with my Sharona so on ridiculous. it. I feel like the people would have just la- like walked out of the theater. I mean, it it is so shocking that he thought that was a good idea. Now he admits now that it was a bad idea, but unbelievably bad idea. Like, there's some other really bad ideas in this film, so maybe it kind of makes sense. But that is just incredible. I'm, I'm noticing now that uh, parts of the show doc I didn't read and now I'm seeing the one that's, that is related to this where he says in one of your all's comments, my Sharona has a really good sodomy beat. Yeah. <laughs> what the actual fuck? I mean, he knows Zed's rhythm. He's got Zed's rhythm down there. <laughs> yeah. So, in the opening of the movie, as you're watching the opening credits, famously, the radio dial changes, and the movie's whole vibe changes to Jungle Boogie, Cool in the Gang. Joshua, you want to do that one? Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I don't have any, any really incredible insights on Jungle Boogie. Um, I picked it for a couple reasons. Um, one is that one of the things that occurred to me on re-watching is how much the soundtrack and the film came to become really two separate artifacts in a lot of ways. And that the, the, this, a song like Jungle Boogie becomes such a giant, giant song on its own um, after that film. And then you watch the film again, and it's surprisingly just on the radio in the background. You know, it's not really featured. And this is actually a little bit of a compliment to Quentin Tarantino, or maybe it just, nobody would have thought to do it differently because we haven't entered that world yet where the songs just dominate everything all the time. But but it's really used in a very tasteful way. And to my memory, that was surprising because the song is so dominant that it just struck me that it's like, oh yeah, no, the soundtrack exists in my head as like a separate thing from the film. And I don't actually really think of many of those scenes together. There's a couple iconic ones, obviously, but I was surprised by that. And so I think, I guess that's a compliment to him that, that the song actually doesn't step on the scene at all. And it's, you know, a really iconic scene. This is, this is a scene, the scene where, um, Jules and uh, Vincent are driving at the beginning of the film. It's the first time we're getting their banter and they are going to do the first big job that they have to do. And that's um, the scene with the big kahuna burger and all that stuff to come. But this is them in the car talking about the Royale with cheese and uh, Jungle Boogie's on in the background. And it's a fun conversation. It kind of it. There's a lot of things that you could say about that scene. I'm very aware whenever I'm thinking or talking about a 
film like Pulp Fiction that there's almost nothing you can say that hasn't been said. But, you know, it is one of the things that is sort of funny about the, uh, you know, having a beer in a theater and and those sorts of revelations in that scene is that, uh, you know, this is definitely very pre-internet stuff here. You know, the idea that different people say things in different ways. And the only way you would know that is if you happen to have a friend who went to Europe um, for a month or whatever he did and came back and told you about, yeah. you know, a quarter pounder with cheese you know what or something. They call a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris. They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? I mean, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it a uh, royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. A Le Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So another thing about Jungle Boogie is that, like a lot of these, this is a, this was a huge hit song. 1974. I looked it up. Then it's uh, ranked as the number 12 song of 1974. I mean, we're talking a big, big hit wow, song. Wow, I didn't know it was that and, big this time. Yeah, but it was new to you when it came out, didn't yep. it? I mean, in Pulp Fiction, right? Like it. Mm. If things didn't make it into like a classic rock radio format or something like that, it didn't stick around, you know, like Stairway to Heaven stuck around or, or you know, uh, uh, Voodoo Child or something like that, right? But like certain songs got lost. And especially, you know, at this point in 1994, the station that you would have been listening to in Dallas where you might have even heard a song like this um, probably would have been KKDA. That's the station that played uh, Stevie Wonder in the city every day at 5.30 or 6. I don't remember what it was. Right when everybody got off work, that was the same song every single day because it was like, no, this is what you drive home to. You know, That's kind and of awesome, actually. It was. It was. And I would tune in because I knew that, but I didn't listen to that station all the time. If I did, I might have known Jungle Boogie a little bit more. And people that I knew that were a bit older than me um, or maybe significantly older than me, did who cared a lot about the originalness of things. Um, definitely, were they were the first people I knew who did not like Quentin Tarantino. I worked with a guy who, when Reservoir Dogs came out, just hated it. He was a huh. film guy, and he thought, "Well, why would I want to watch some guy just steal everything from other people and you know steal the music and steal the the plot and steal the the you know all the little things that happen." Why would I do that? Like, he hated it. And, you know, to me, yeah. it was all new. Now, after when when you were young and you see these movies and you hear this music, you kind of spend the rest of your time realizing how much you didn't know. Like, if you see Taxi Driver after you've seen Pulp Fiction, mm -hmm. the scene where Eric Stoltz is, is offering the different types of heroin... You go, and th there's a scene in Taxi Driver where he's picking what gun to mm -hmm. buy. And it's it's the same meter, the same tone. He's telling him about the different choices. So later you see these things and you go, oh, yeah, no, these were huge references. Jungle Boogie was not a, an obscure thrift store find. It was a huge song. But the way that the culture worked then is, first of all, you've got really heavy segregation um, in music and in culture and in these sorts of things. And also, you've got yeah. things get lost because they're not being kept mm -hmm. around. There's not, you know, Spotify or whatever um, that's keeping everything going all the time. So if a song wasn't being played on the radio a lot, it was, you know, it was probably forgotten by large groups of people. And so a lot of these songs... If you didn't own the album... Yeah. And it wasn't still on the radio. How would you know? You weren't going to hear right. it. So a lot of these songs yeah. are being um, 
treated or they felt really, really new and really fresh. But big song by Cool and the Gang. They were a enormous band. So, you know, there's nothing hidden about this. There's nothing secret about this, but it felt like that at the time. And um, in this particular scene, it's uh, a, the song is probably not as iconic in this scene as it is on the soundtrack. And on the soundtrack, it's very iconic. All of so much of everything you just said, Joshua, is is true of the song that I picked. Sure. Mm-hmm. Which is, it's interesting that, uh, like, our takeaways are, are similar. The song that I picked is uh, Son of a Preacher Man. Being good isn't always easy, no matter how hard I try. When he started sweet talking to me, he come and tell me everything is all right. He kiss and tell me everything is all right. Can I get away again tonight? The only one who could ever... Uh, which is playing when uh, Vincent Vega shows up at the Wallace's home mm-hmm. to take Mia on the date. Um, Son of a Preacher Man was a Grammy-nominated song for Female Vocalist of the Year. And uh, it it lost to Peggy Lee, but it was considered the favorite. Um, it was also a huge song. Yeah. People, uh, people who were alive and around and listening to the radio when the song came out would have known it very, very mm-hmm. well. I, I think, too, that the Son of a Preacher Man stands out to me in what you just said because it's also like got a weird uh, story around segregation. Like, Dusty Springfield uh, is a white Brit of Irish descent. Her birth name is Mary O'Brien, like central <laughs> casting <laughs> Irish girl. Um, and she's part of this like blue-eyed soul movement uh, where radio stations in the U.S. end up playing her without knowing that she's not black. Um, she's she's like deeply involved in, uh, in black American music in really authentic ways. She opens for uh, the Supremes when they take European tours. She's, she spends uh, time in Memphis and in Nashville trying to like spend uh, like time with the session musicians becoming like better skilled in all of the tropes of the music she loves most, the Motown and R&B music she's into. Um, basically, like, Dusty Springfield walked so that Adele could run. <laughs> and uh, and she's got this, like, whole world of, uh, of a career where she's very often the only white person at, uh, at the event, either on the stage or uh, in the audience. So... Dusty Springfield is kind of a weird uh, selection here too, but also was this this uh, really really big big song. Um, I have a fun piece of trivia for you about Dusty Springfield. Can you guess the astonishingly huge twentieth century mega band that owes their entire career to her? Wait, what are the what's the category again? Twentieth century. Mega band, like one of twentieth century mega band that owes their entire career to her. Yeah, like biggest, biggest band ever. I'm trying to see how uh-huh. many hints I can get without getting the whole thing. So when you say owes their entire career, like she she discovered them, uh huh, oh. and she convinced the label okay. to give them okay. a contract. I was gonna, okay, 
I was gonna say, oh, right. you, 20th century. So she convinces <laughs> the label, uh-huh. you have to sign this band, uh-huh. and then they become huge. Mm-hmm. Pearl yep. Jam. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot earlier than I'm gonna, Pearl Jam. I'm, I, mine is fairly random. I'm going to say Tom Petty uh-huh. and the Heartbreakers. Oh, it's an even bigger band than that. It's, really? Oh, good lord! What are you talking it's about? It's Lead Fucking Zeppelin. No. Oh my god! That can't be because <laughs> Jimmy Page. That's not true. Because Jimmy Page was already in she, a ton of successful bands. She goes. She I, goes listening. to Atlantic. She goes to Atlantic and says, "This band needs a real contract. They need a real label and a real contract." And they get signed for two hundred grand, which at the time is a tremendous amount of money. Basically, like on Dusty Springfield's recommendation. Wow! Because no, they were That's all incredible. they were all in other really super cool. bands. They're not super bands, but they were all in other known bands. Before and then they formed a super band. That doesn't mean that Led Zeppelin. I know, had a but it's like the Yardbirds though. had a ton of hits, and Jimmy Page was like the guitar dude. There was other people in the Yardbirds you can't name. I don't know. Uh, I find another that. another thing that we uh, we know about how big of a song this was in 1987. So you know, seven years before this movie comes out, uh, Rolling Stone puts it on its list of top 100 songs of all time. And it's and it's pretty mm. it's pretty high up on, yeah. on that list. Like it's in the top half of that list. So yeah. you know, again, like it's not a th- it's not a thrift store B side. It was a hugely popular song uh, from a very influential musician who uh, played with Elton John. Would later actually duet with the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah, it's great. Also, the uh, Growing Pains theme. Show me that smile. Show me that that (laughs) smile. Don't waste another Wait, she wrote that? No, it was was written by the star of Growing Pains. (laughs) No, no, no. It was written by Alan Thicke. She sang that? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was was a miss. That was a, that was a, I, I framed that misleadingly. There is a season of Growing Pains that uses a Dusty Springfield song. As it's oh, right, because okay. they would use this. Wait, no, it's the. Is, are you sure it's not just her singing the uh, that song? Yeah, 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 yeah no, right, it's, right. it's her yeah, performance right. of the song. Because they would have different seasons. They would like do different That's versions right. of it, and like they would have yes. a different yes. beginning where everybody's a little older. Anyway, I think that one of the things that was important to me in looking at Son of a Preacher Man was that realization before this conversation. I'm so glad, Joshua, that you're like hitting on the same thing which is like this guy wasn't sitting around finding this like obscure music which if you had told me that when i was 17 or 18 i'd have been like whoa it would have blown my mind because i definitely at the time thought wow these cool unknown (laughs) gems have all been like brought up from the like muck of the peat bog and offered to us on a platter i mean i didn't think they were that obscure I, w- I fully admit that I did. I did not know them. I thought they were like, I thought they were like hits, hits from the vault. You know what I mean? Like when, like, it's like greatest hits that haven't made the curation. Because I had heard, I had known "Son of a Preacher Man." This put it in a new light, and I was like, "Oh, this song rules!" I think it was always like a song I made of, like it was familiar to me. Um, but I didn't think they were super obscure. Maybe because I had um, previous experience with the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack, so I kind of like knew knew it here. <laughs> what you were saying? 
to go on this other number one hit route where he's just pulling out old number one hits that he rem- the other the other thing we should talk about cheating at this or how he's cheating at this is what's weird to me is he like grew up in this time so he also is just pulling from what he knows and which is why if i was his um like i don't know what was that we, we have a 10 year difference a 13 15 year difference but it was enough that i keep thinking okay it's 2022 if i were to make a movie doing this i guess it would be 2002 and i would have access to my brain my 2002 brain and just pull out all weird interesting shit i like then matt i have not smoked nearly enough <laughs> weed today to understand what the fuck oh you're talking God. about your Tell math is all over the place let me, let me say tw- he's going back 20 years <laughs> that if we and i said if we went back 20 years He's going back 20 years and he's like Jungle Boogie. Oh, you mean he's pulling mu- he's pulling and, music from 20 years in, in and the a past, past he lived you're in. saying if we were making a movie right now, yeah. we'd be pulling music and pulling music from 20 years ago. We'd be pulling music from when we were in yeah, like our fit. early 20s or whatever and we'd know that music yes, really really well. Yes, which is why it's so crazy to me that that was mm-hmm. such an interesting crazy thing he's doing cuz how easy would that be for you to do? But people wouldn't Today. do it. Right, 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 right. Today. Which I, is why I, I, I think that one of the things one of the things we're forgetting is that he also was part of a a time when I mean the things were being memory hold for him and his peers as well. I mean, people weren't hanging on to things even that they that had once been big hits. What um I'm I'm rem- thinking corollary would be um, you know, one of the things that people were surprised about like as dr dre as a young producer is that he was finding these beats from songs that they wouldn't have expected him to be listening to now not that they were all super obscure Mm -hmm. it's that Mm -hmm. wow you you like this parliament song or whatever it is like like they were surprised that like why would this young guy know this stuff and it's because you know the people weren't holding on to old stuff that much like what am i trying to say i'm trying to say that like it's not just that they're mentioning things dr dre for instance in music was mentioning things that happened when he was a kid yes quentin tarantino in film is mentioning things that happened when he was a kid yes but they're remembering things that other people aren't remembering even their peers aren't quite remembering this stuff. They're not listening to it all the time. They're not bringing this stuff with them. Um, now, y- yes, there was certain uh, certain songs were being brought around, and you know that's why we have Wayne's World's jokes about Stairway to Heaven and things like that. There's every band got two or three songs example, that everybody yeah. carried with them forever, but the whole culture wasn't moving along with them in their memory. So what these guys were doing is also having a really good memory or having good taste to be able to say this thing that you all forgot about i never forgot about it because i always liked it and i think it's still good and then of course they were right like it was like no you're right that is still good like so what so like what's special about him is not that he can identify the gems it's that he can remember the gems and all of the like non-gems and be like I'm going to pick just the gems, but everybody else has forgotten all of the things. That's a, that's a big part uh-huh. of it, I think, yes. Uh-huh. It's also, we didn't put such a premium on knowing about culture. Culture has become its own, like, study. And people used to just, I don't know if people revisited or thought about what it meant that they saw a Western a bunch of times. They just thought it was a cool movie, and then it passed by, and they said, oh, yeah, those movies were great. And then I think mainstream culture would boil it down to, like, just a bunch of John Wayne movies. And that's how people would remember it. But his 
his passion was just this shit. And it just so happens that everyone becomes obsessed with the minutia of culture. Like, remember in Clerks, when they talk about were there contractors or construction workers on the Death Star? Yes. Yeah. That shit blew my mind. And it was an obscure, weird, funny thing to say. Now they just make movies and that guy gets his own spinoff and he gets three films about the construction worker who built the Death Star. <laughs> so I think he also hit this weird little moment where he's like, the, my little hobby that I'm obsessed with became mainstream. One of the ways of thinking about how of what you're saying is that I think that, uh, you know, I guess it's late 80s or so when Trivial Pursuit becomes the big board game. And, um, you know, if you re if you look at old Trivial Pursuit cards, they're pretty difficult because they're not all pop culture questions. In fact, pop culture is like only like one small section of the questions. It's the purple you know? slice of the yeah. pie. Art, arts and, <laughs> arts and entertainment. Yeah, it's not, that, it's not that big a thing. You can't win just by knowing, you know, what movie Paul Newman was in in 1967 or something like yep. that. You're going to have to be able to name, you know, some moons of Jupiter. Um, <laughs> but no one would play a board game like that now. I mean, if you go to trivia, uh, you know, at a bar or something like that, it's 90% it's pop culture. Yeah. There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away And they call it Lonesome Town Where the broken hearts stay You guys want to go to something super light and fun? Alright, Lonesome Town plays in the background of the 50s restaurant that Uma Thurman and John Travolta go to, Vincent and what's her name in it? I forget. Amia. And she orders a $5 milkshake. And John Travolta cannot believe in 1994 a, five, a milkshake would cost $5. Right. I remember, I remember at the time thinking that was unbelievable. Yeah, I'm, I, I was with Travolta in that moment as well. <laughs> yeah, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I remember we talked about it. I remember it was, it was, it was amazing. So I did a little research. Oh yeah, what's the inflation an, calculator, Matt? Use an inflation calculator, exactly. Tell tell me, Matt. Wait, okay, wait, wait. So no, actually, Matt, can I guess? I also I also researched um, a bunch of different places and their milkshake prices. Okay, okay, okay. This is gonna right, be fun. Cool. Uh, first of all, I want Josh Joshua. You don't know the twenty twenty two price of the five dollar milkshake already, do you? No. Uh, no. Okay. All right. Are we gonna guess? prices right this? Yes. Uh, under over. <laughs> yeah. So you're uh, saying how much would a five dollar milkshake cost today? Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah, if he was at that restaurant if just, now. Just in inflation. We're just Shh. talking inflation, right? Yeah, yeah. How much is $5 yeah, yeah. worth in inflation? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Joshua, would you like to go first? Uh, I'm going to say that milkshake would be uh, $13 today. Uh, uh, well, if I'm really prices writing it, then I'm, I'm going to say $1 because I think it's under 13 I don't think it's significantly under 13 though. I think it's okay. probably like about 12 Do you want to know who won the showcase showdown? Yes. yes. Due to a new a car. According to inflation, $5 in 1994 today would be $9.50. Oh, I was way oh. off. Wow. Okay. Okay. So I win the car, but yes. also I would have <laughs> lost the car if I had guessed first because, uh, but still, that's still a lot of money. Like we live yeah. in New yeah, York City exactly. and but this we was LA, though. This was LA. ridiculous prices for fucking milkshakes to be delivered to yes. us all of the time. And I do not pay $9 for a milkshake. We're, we're also the post cocktail era where people will pay like $16 for a cocktail, which <laughs> in true. anything in a glass now, our minds are warped. 
Did anyway, wanna, I think that's a very you, expensive milkshake. Did you look up now. some prices at the time you said? Yeah, so no, so I looked up various prices now of okay. of what kind of milkshake you can get for these these prices. So at the low end, I know they're at like a a probably overpriced theme restaurant, obviously. But right, I kind of yes, feel like it's yeah. like Tarantino's like fever dream version of, of Johnny course. Rockets. Totally, totally yeah. is, yeah. Yeah. Or he like wrote it in a hard rock cafe or something and got excited. <laughs> um he did not invent the theme restaurant, but he did invent postmodernism. <laughs> yeah. So McDonald's, you can still get a milkshake for under $3. But who knows? It's like pig's milk or something. Who knows what you're drinking? At McDonald's. Oh, God. Dairy Queen, it's four fifty nine. But this is a good milkshake. This is, he says, yep. God damn, this is a good milkshake. So. Yep. Well, DQ makes a good milkshake. Sure. Yeah, but I'm talking like. So yeah, this uh, is a fancy place, you know, uh-huh. everything was yeah, expensive. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. of course, if you go to New York Magazine, you can say New York City, what's the best milkshake? They're like, we're on it. Here's the top yeah. 10 milkshakes in New York City. And the price is pretty comparable. There's a place I never heard of that's supposed to have one of the best milkshakes called Black Tap Burger. It's I don't like know. a Black Tap Burger place. They're famous for their milkshakes and their milkshakes, I think, it's hard to see. I was trying to check the menu, are $9.50, but they have crazy shakes with Tons of shit in them for $15. But like David Chang's Milk Bar, $10 milkshake. Ben and Jerry's Times Square, $9 milkshake. Big Gay Ice Cream. Alamo Draft House, they're about 9 bucks, 10 bucks. And Big Gay Ice Cream, $8 milkshake. So the New York prices and LA prices check out. These are overpriced milkshakes that if you went somewhere else in the country <laughs> and said, you want a milkshake? Give me 10 bucks. They'd be like, go fuck yourself. No, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think one of the things that scene made me think about is how much... Um, foodie culture has changed since then because he's Ooh, right a milkshake point, is a milkshake is milk and ice cream but now we're at a state where somebody's like yes but it's milk from this certain yes. farm and it's ice cream that you know was massaged yeah. by yes. you know whatever yeah. and um, at, free and trade bar, workers it, or whatever and at milk bar it has like fruity pebbles blended into it which in is, a different but, way than DQ but, would have ever done which is another <laughs> yeah. cheap item right like these are all cheap yeah, items yeah, yeah. still You're right. but yeah. now we have this like this we accept that food is going to be a lot more expensive and i think even the way they order food there that they sit down and he's just like give me a steak and she's like yeah. i'll take that burger like yeah. they don't care like yeah. like everybody eats like pretty plain stuff yeah. and i think just it just all it does is it just shows how big foodie culture has gotten and how much like food network and stuff has like caused us all and to become like so worried about like the truffle aioli on our whatever you know i think now, you're 100% right yeah. But I do also think that this movie uh, has a lot of of food in it. Yes, yes. Um, in real, like you're right that people are really basic about the way they experience the food or the way they choose the food. But like, there's a shit ton of food scenes. Burgers, smoking fries. while you eat. Yeah. Yeah. Cigarettes, it's great, burgers. Young lady, what's your name? Mrs. Mia Wallace. And uh, how about your fella here? All right, let's see what you can do. Take it away. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the Mademoiselle. The song that's not a number one hit that is a move that I think is a really good move is You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry. I mean, it was still big. It made it to 14, but... There's a, a twist contest, and there's so many twist songs that you can play right. in this 1950s over-the-top. And I always thought it was 
one of the rare moments of restraint where he just chose this nice little Chuck Berry song that you can twist well to. There's also such a stereotype about what Chuck Berry is and what he sounds like. And the fact that this song, I don't think that you would just, somebody would just immediately say, oh, that's, that's clearly Chuck Berry. Because it doesn't fit into the, the, the Back to the Future idea of what Chuck Berry sounds like. And uh, yeah, it's a cool song. It's, 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 um, it definitely makes you think that maybe there's more to him than the stereotype version. I think Quentin Tarantino, in his minutia obsession of pop culture and subversiveness, liked You Never Can Tell because he probably knew the story that Chuck Berry had taken a 14-year-old across state lines. I believe was arrested. And then his next hit was about a teenage wedding, which was controversial <laughs> at the time. And I feel like it's a very Did weird Tarantino move to make. This is me just theorizing, but I bet that's in the back of his mind when he's doing this. Cause he's like, what's seedy? What's fucked up? What's wrong? Oh, what's- that is fucked up. I bet you're right. I bet Tarantino did think that that was kind of funny. Yeah. I'm sure that Tarantino thought that was, I'm sure that gave him like a little mischievous giggle. I came to it because I was like, there's so many surf songs. Why did he pick uh, so many twist songs? Why did he pick this one? That scene, I, that scene already kind of sucks. I'm so glad he didn't pick a twist song. Like that would. Why always, do you think that scene I, sucks? I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not much of a fan of most of the um, Uma Thurman segment of the movie. Um, I just don't, I don't like that diner. I don't like them dancing. I, it just doesn't do much for me. <laughs> I love the dance scene. That's like a, a brief respite of humanity. I mean, I guess every, there's a large group of people who say they were the perfect stage for this film. But, uh, you know, I saw it several times in the theater and I had already seen Reservoir Dogs when it came out. So, you know, opening day, my friends and I are there. We're very excited. And there's a I was a feeling of like, oh, well, this is clearly the coolest movie I've ever seen. But also a part of me deep down that I was never going to admit, but that I came to know much better as I as I got older, which was that. It's not really my kind of movie. Like I have, I share a lot of the same influences as him in terms of like his crime fiction. Like I know he's a big fan of Charles Williford, and that's like one of my favorite writers. You know, uh, we 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 have some of the same fondnesses, and yet he likes them in a different way than I like them. And so there's a lot of things in the movie that when he says he announces that something is cool, um, I sort of accepted as a young person to say this must be cool then but for some reason the movie didn't really like i remember the last time i saw it in the theater just like falling asleep you know i it didn't grab me the way so many other movies around those years did and as i've come to know myself more and it's like oh because quentin tarantino tracks traffics in a lot of things that i'm not crazy about like like uh, the lack of emotion the lack of meaning doesn't do a lot for me either you know my favorite movie is it's a wonderful life the apartment is in my top five <laughs> i mean like you know i like these sorts of things about movies and but since in after years and years of years of coming to learn that i don't really like quentin tarantino by going and seeing jackie brown opening day and not really knowing what to make of it and then going and seeing Kill Bill and really not liking it and not really knowing what to do with that and then seeing Kill Bill 2 and being like, ooh, I don't know if I like this at all and then Death Proof coming out and just being like, I I, I don't like this guy. I don't want anything to do with this world. Then fast forward a bunch of years later and he makes it Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is 
in one of my one of my favorite films of all time. Saw it four what? times in the theater. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. That is wild. I was not expecting all time. So it's a wonderful life and once upon a time in Hollywood. Well, I'm when I say all time, it's <laughs> wow. when I say all time, maybe it's top thirty or something like that. The um um when when so I'm rewatching Pulp Fiction now, newly open to this guy to realize like he got to a place that I didn't know he was going to be able to get to and to be able to craft in a, a really wonderfully emotional, interesting film. And so rewatching Pulp Fiction, I was both torn by like all the moments he thought were cool that I was like, I don't think that's cool. I don't like that shot. I don't like that, all this stuff, but also a handful of really nice little moments along the way that I could see the, the really good filmmaker. Um, some of not moments where John Travolta is dancing and like, you know, the scenes where he knows is going to be in the preview or whatever, but a lot of other moments of John Travolta's little asides and little mannerisms that are just wonderful. is really good. And I feel like he, he, he got Travolta, he got Travolta in such a way that it seemed like, oh, he's rediscovered Travolta. Now we're all going to get to enjoy Travolta again. Well, it's not like you're going to find a lot of performances after that where Travolta is as good as he is in Pulp Fiction. He's kind of Michael when he's the angel. Remember that movie? It's so bad. Yeah, and he kind of plays a, a a John Travolta character most of the time, even after Pulp Fiction. But in Pulp Fiction, he has these wonderful little moments. So there was a bunch of times in the movie where I was like, oh, there's the guy who's going to go on to make the film that I love. And so I could see that a little bit now. But it also made it stand out even more for That's me how many times that the things he's doing that he says, oh, this is cool. This is what films are all about. This is what the French New Wave did. That I'm like, yeah, I'm just not so into those moves. I'm not so into this making a square in the air and having the fake background behind the taxi cab and, you know, the way that Uma Thurman basically acts all the time in the movie. Like a lot of those choices... Uh, don't do much for me. They didn't quite at the time, but I, I didn't really know my own taste well enough to realize that then. Wow. My my experience is all that shit blew my mind and I ate it up and I was like, give me more imaginary squares and all that stuff. And then, like <laughs> Heather said, it burned so fast that by the time I got to college, if you had a Pulp Fiction poster in your dorm room, you just weren't cool. You were like, oh God, one of these people. Like, it was just, it went, it came, it was gone. And I didn't have any interest in his movies. And then when I come back to Quentin Tarantino is Inglorious Bastards, which I would argue I think is his best movie, because it's about film and Nazi propaganda film. And he plays with what he knows best and then finds a place where he can talk about basically propaganda and do his film within a film within a film thing. And I also kind of love it because it's so merciless against Nazis and it's the only time it's any kind of like political choice that I can be like oh and like feel something I, I kind of agree with Matt that Inglorious Bastards is like sets Tarantino up for success in a way that doesn't expect Tarantino to change any of the stupidest things about himself right it like it gives him a way to be his most Tarantino self without I was gonna say he uses his Tarantino powers for good not bad. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's that's because Pulp Fiction. You're like, who cares? And then that's a really good way of putting it. It's it it takes all of this, all of the stuff he can do, and it puts it in a machine that is directed finally at something worth directing a machine at. You know what I mean? And it makes sense to his knowledge of all this bullshit actually works with the plot. Yeah, and the I was so it. struck in watching Pulp Fiction by how by how empty it is. It's just like the most the right. emptiest movie. Like these, yeah. it, it's uh, 
it has it has nothing happens. It's not none of it is important. There's no meaning. The characters uh, experience nothing. They uh, there aren't even endings of any meaningful kind. Like yeah, it's a it's a shockingly like abjectly uh, emotionless sociopathic movie. It struck me like how much, although disguised by a lot of. Um, violence and things like this of how much of just an art movie it is now that's going to sound like i mean that as a compliment i don't necessarily i just mean that it's like purely exist for the purpose of um being an artistic artifact like it's even the title itself it's a funny title if you think about it pulp fiction it'd be Mm -hmm. like making a movie called romance novel Mm -hmm. right it's it's like something andy warhol would do right make a painting and call it you know whatever canvas painting or something like that i mean so much of the film just exists to say uh look at how well, we keep using the word cool, but I, I do think that it is, it is a, for a mainstream yeah. movie, it's a very arty film. It's just purely aesthetic but, and um, kind of owning that. Like the title alone is saying this movie doesn't actually mean anything. This movie isn't even a movie. It's, it's a, what is Pulp Fiction? That's not the title of a movie. This, this movie is, a, this movie is like a creative exercise in and and yeah yeah, yeah. I yeah. think you're and right I really that, like Josh. that you brought up Andy Warhol because I know this is the the big postmodern movie of the 90s but I kept thinking this might be really boring for people but I kept thinking of modernism because like Andy Warhol Andy Warhol like if I can blow up something really big or repeat it enough times you will look at that thing consider it give it meaning fill it with pathos whatever and I feel like Quentin Tarantino will shoot a hamburger close up and it's meaningless yes but it has that or Andy Warhol's famous Marilyn Monroe, that's kind of like John Travolta, right? And he'll just give you this object of pop culture. He'll shoot it like it's worth so much and worth your consideration, and you might start filling it with meaning, but ultimately, it is this exercise that you're talking about, this aesthetic exercise. And, and he gets out before you can hit emotion. Like, that dance sequence just fades out. What would happen in a movie is they'd maybe look at each other and feel a spark of something, but he's like, no. And any time you get to that, but I think he knows that. I think he's like, these are cartoons. It's called Pulp Fiction. These are all a bunch of, it's the classic bark, the boxer trope who threw the match and double-crossed him. It's the, the hitman's got to take his boss's wife out. That whole thing. And he puts them in a weird situation, makes a worse thing happen to them. And then when you're like, what the fuck? He's like, here's another one. Here's another one. And then what happens, like you said, is it, it kind of makes you feel kind of a little gross and empty and meaning. I think you're right that he knows that. Which I think is like maybe what Joshua was getting at that, you know, Joshua watches all of these Tarantino movies as they unfold over the years. And it's like, this guy is interested in things I'm not interested in. I, I think you're right, Matt. Like he, he knows that he walks away before any of these characters can become real. And he's saying that's the most boring part of a movie. I'm with Joshua at, at that point. I'm like, well, okay, yeah. <laughs> enjoy yourself. <laughs> that's not really what I'm here for. <laughs> Which is my point before like praising him for recognizing this and seeing this, but then you don't get the last. Maybe this ultimately, here we can bookend it. Maybe this ultimately makes it uncool then because you're just preying on a collection of other people's cool things. And you're like, check out my awesome collection. And you're like, whoa, you got a lot of stuff. And then he's like, yeah. And then you don't know what to say after that. Then the conversation ends. You know what I mean? It's like the movie version of Jay Leno's garage. (laughs) 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 Well, I finally 
big song which i think is the weak spot on the whole track is urge overkills girl you'll be a woman soon and i'm already in this mindset of teenage weddings chuck berry and then this guy and maybe i was looking at the lyrics he refers to himself a boy at one point and maybe it's a boy and a girl and they're gonna fall in love and grow up but it's a man's adult brooding dark voice and he's like girl you'll be a woman soon and all you can think of is like a scary chat room on the future internet or something a really deeply creepy song and at the time <laughs> i found it super creepy thoughts i i also found it uh, a deeply unsettling song at the time but interestingly not for that reason i think just sonically it's yeah. it's very sinister it's a weird it's a weird choice yeah it stands yeah. out on the soundtrack it, it definitely it does. doesn't feel of a piece with all no, of the rest and i of wonder the if you have to put a new band or a new song it sounds like he was just into it it's a menacing sounding song, lyrics yeah. aside. I don't think it set up Urge Overkill very well either because like they don't really sound like that a whole lot otherwise. And so no. they, they were supposed to be like the next big, big band and it didn't really work for them. And I wonder to what extent it's sort of this movie kind of created an idea of them that they actually weren't really that band. And so it, I don't know, disappointed people or set up expectations or something. I don't know if that's the case, but I, I did always wonder that they were they were set up to be this giant band and it, it didn't really happen for yeah. them. And it is the outlier. It was then and I think it still is now. I mean, just to finish off the song section, Flowers on the Wall by the Statler Brothers. That's a nice choice. I like that one. That's a good song. The Flowers on the Wall is when Bruce Willis is driving, singing along to it. Apparently Bruce Willis really liked that song too, so was happy with it. I think you can tell that Bruce Willis genuinely likes that song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. The, that's the way true. He's he, very enthusiastic. I feel that like, is very believable. Uh, in that little car they give him too, which is uh, that was my first car. Really? Yeah, <laughs> really? 1981 Honda Civic. My Honda. That's awesome. Yeah. Where's my <laughs> Honda? Um, I I think that the way that this movie resurrects uh, Travolta and Bruce Willis and puts them in a completely different echelon of you know, what we're supposed to expect from them uh -huh. as actors works much better for Bruce Willis than it does for, for Travolta. Well, um, you know, I think Travolta yeah. had some really nice moments, but I think Bruce Willis is really, really perfect in it. I think that Bruce Willis yeah. is the most uh, genuinely affecting of all of the characters mm. in the movie. I think he gives uh, a performance that makes you feel like he might actually be a person right, rather right. than a character. Uh, in a yeah, way that no that one is, else is doing. That's a good point. Someone like Roger Ebert has a good line where he's like, oh, and then we're reminded that Bruce Willis can actually act when he's not just in one of these explosive yeah. um, action movies. And I was like, that's right. pretty good. And also, but because he's also in those explosive action movies, we get the scene of when he steps out of the shower and you're reminded, damn, Bruce Willis is a good looking dude. He sure is. Right? Like, I mean, I was like, man. Yeah. I remember thinking he was so jacked in that movie 
But now being jacked, you have to be. Well, an that alien is funny. The ex- like. the expectations of what a uh, leading man um, is supposed to look like over the years. I saw. I was watching a Paul Newman movie recently, and there's definitely some scenes where he's like full honk and like like shirtless, like and you're like, yeah, man. <laughs> no, but he's just he just has like not no real definition yeah. or anything. It's not a big deal. It's just yeah. that the expectations have changed so much. But Bruce Willis is looking real good. Yeah. Um, stepping out of that shower and i was like oh but yeah it, i forget bruce willis is like there's a reason he was bruce yeah, freaking yeah, willis totally. you know he also but the acting thing like the diehard thing is great because it was arnold schwarzenegger and sylvester stallone and then bruce willis does the i'm not even supposed to be here today you know thing and he feels like a regular guy and then all of a sudden you have this new like wisecracking um hero who's not like a bodybuilder a believable guy and you could be like oh maybe i can be a cop We'll take out a bunch of terrorists in a skyscraper. By the way, I I, I think I'm going to add Die Hard to your to to the uh, the Matt uh, Bruce Springsteen rule that like uh, you can only talk to Matt for so long before at some point you get to Bruce Springsteen. Die Hard, die yes. Hard. I'm adding Die Hard to that now. The Bruce the Bruce Springsteen thing is you've you've created that. <laughs> okay, you have. All but right. the Die Hard thing uh-huh. is so true. Die Hard <laughs> is such a formative part of my life for some reason, and I think about it hourly. <laughs> <laughs> I love Die Hard. What's that soundtrack? That don't bother me at all. Playing solitaire till dawn with the deck of 51. Smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. Now don't tell me I've nothing to do. So, during the Trump administration, when they had that terrible. Um, protest in Virginia and white guys were carrying torches and screaming Jews will not replace us and I was filled with anxiety and super upset someone on Twitter put the Brad Pitt scene talking about killing Nazis from Inglorious Bastards linked to it and I watched it and it filled me with such joy and then I watched the movie because of it and the movie is just like we know what you are fuck you we'll destroy you put together a bunch of Jewish guys. They blow away Hitler like it's Scarface at the end of the movie. And it was like, fuck Nazis, fuck Nazis. And I was always like, wow, it's just a piece of stupid pop culture and gave me this moment of respite. That, and then I'm watching Pulp Fiction and then Pulp Fiction feels so fucking racist. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this. And I went from associating him with this like, fuck racism. This is the most anti-racist movie that treats racist people like dogs and hunts them down literally. Two. Quentin Tarantino using racial slurs for effect because I don't know if he, not because he has this huge racist agenda, but like guns and blood and drugs and sex, he sees it as another subversive thing you're not supposed to do to throw on top of the heap of all the references, which is pretty heartless and irresponsible, I think. And he thinks the N-word belongs in that category, and then he uses it to the same effect. And that I was joking before for a visionary really isn't very visionary. I think if Quentin Tarantino were a writer instead of a filmmaker, he'd be like working for reason magazine and like hanging <laughs> out, out with like the Harper's letter signet signatories. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's just one of those guys who's like, you don't think it's okay to do this. Well, I'm going to do it just because you don't think it's cool. There's a yeah, there's like a, so a contrariness cheesy. to it that is uh, really actually I think aggressive. It's a mm. it's a form of mm-hmm. aggression that it that that pretends that a certain kind of like erudite uh, high minded 
liberalism is is like the way to be for the uh, yeah. it's you're right matt i think you're 100 percent right and it is gross it's picking and choosing your context right because he loves context and all that stuff but he's like what i'm using it in this context so it's not bad and you're like yeah but just put it in a different context and you sound like a fucking asshole lunatic you know i think that's interesting as well and he's forcing you but what's crazy is i went through the reviews and no one mentions it except for janet maslin of all people and she says the slurs lose their teeth or, or are completely toothless because he's just using them as another prop. I like how Janet Maslin thinks that she's the arbiter of whether or not that word has teeth. <laughs> uh, you could go read. Um, Spike Lee talked about it yes. at length at the time. So, he, no, was, he was yes. very vocal. Uh, and he was one of the, the loudest voices about it at the time, which not surprising. Spike Lee's a loud voice about a say? lot of things. He said he was very he hated yeah. it. And he he's always been pretty anti Quentin Tarantino uh, about that aspect of, of his work. I mean, I don't know if he's made nice sense, but I know that it's been a constant theme that like I've seen Spike talk a lot about things and like Quentin Tarantino will come up in conversations and he's, as just sort of like the butt of his joke or like, you know, if he's if he needs to go to like a film that's like really problematic, you know, mm -hmm. he'll say he'll say Driving Miss Daisy or Tarantino film or something. Has Tarantino ever responded to that, to your knowledge? I'm, I'm sure he has, but I, so I, I was don't looking. Know. I was looking into this because, and I'm glad you brought that up because the film reviewers didn't care until Spike Lee told them to care. So then Spike Lee comes out and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This guy's throwing around this word. It's irresponsible. He points it out and then everyone kind of starts to care. And then the counter is always then Sam Jackson is like, no, he's not racist. But I never think the issue is, is Quentin Tino, Tarantino being actively racist. It's like... It sort of figures that is Samuel L. Jackson would think that the best thing to do in that situation is to be like, he's nice to me. Well, he's, <laughs> he says it, you know, when Django comes out, it, when it comes up, he's like, I know him. There's no ill will. It's not racist. But I think the bigger question is like using a word like that, that's, you know, says so much history behind it or is so painful for people. I'll give a slightly different take on it just because I think that, you know, obviously the argument of whether or not somebody should be using the n-word is a bigger one than than we need to be tackling but so i'll say that um like as to my reference earlier about i i like a lot of the same source material as tarantino i get the 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 books that he's read that's led him to want to do that i also love the martin scorsese scene in taxi driver that is doing that same move it's uh martin scorsese plays himself in the back of a taxi and i won't repeat what he says but it's it's you know it's the kind of thing that if i did say it it's pretty shocking and it and it fits and it's great and i love it i love reading things that i feel like i'm not supposed to be reading and that maybe the person wasn't supposed to be writing um, well, that's what he's counting on. That's what he's counting I on. I get where he's coming from with it. But my, for me, the problem with it is also a larger problem with the film in general is that the person... So when Jules and Vern blow the kid's head off, spoiler, and they need a safe place, uh, Jules calls his friend. And so the casting choice of who would be Jules' friend is so unbelievably terrible that you can pretty much throw the movie away as a great movie. <laughs> it is unbelievable how bad he is in it and that and that this was allowed That's, to happen. He wanted to do that so, diatribe though. He was excited to do that diatribe. I know. And 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 he's a terrible actor. Yeah. He's absolutely terrible. And that word 
coming out of somebody that terrible, never mind that he's the maker, and sure, that complicates things, but I'm just saying that when you write it and you're playing with that fire and then you have it delivered by somebody who doesn't, who's not an actor and doesn't look like an actor and looks like it's just some jackass sitting there saying that word. Over and over. Over and over Played and over. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the punchline. And it's, it's awful. It's a terrible scene. It, for me, it knocks the movie so far down on the list of great movies. Um, just because it's like, how can you have a scene that's 10 minutes long that is that bad? Or however long it is. That it's, is that it, bad? It's definitely no. not 10 minutes. And but exists it's for long. that reason. It's long. It exists it's long. for him to just say it. Yeah. And it's awful. And, and so for me, part of the problem is that um, you know, hey, maybe Samuel L. Jackson says it too much, and maybe some of the other, maybe the, some of the white characters say it too often, but that doesn't necessarily bother me all that much. Like, I'm not turning off the film necessarily over it, but boy, I could almost turn off the film listening to Quentin Tarantino say it, because it is, yeah. it is and it's- just awful to hear somebody who has no business acting um, say that because it j- then it doesn't sound like a movie. It doesn't sound like an actor. It just sounds like listening to somebody and say getting that. yeah. And that's I don't and I don't want to hear and excited say that. to say it. Like to your point, I was thinking about this, and even when Eric Stoltz says it, you could, from a film perspective, be like that is something a scumbag drug dealer would say, and maybe he would talk like this. But this is just like, hey, let me do this stand-up bit. I thought of that's shocking. You can make an argument in whatever Reservoir Dogs, whatever movie that like. People do say this shit, and do you want to represent them saying that shit or not? You make the decision. I'll make that argument all day. If if you haven't seen Pulp Fiction recently, you you might forget that uh, when when Jules and uh, and Vega show up with the blown off head guy in the car that Keitel has to come and rescue everybody from and they show up at Quentin Tarantino's house. One of the highlights of the film, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. It's it's like some of the best storytelling. And and he, and Ty, and Kaitel is just wonderful. And Kaitel is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, the yeah. dramatic stakes in this moment are that they have to get all this done before Quentin Tarantino's wife comes home from the graveyard shift as a nurse at the hospital, and we get this one brief scene right. where we're where we're imagining her coming home to. Right. This cleanup, this gangster cleanup job happening in her home. And what's the purpose of that scene? The purpose of that scene, side like the, one more important thing about it. Again, if you don't remember it, because it is short, you could easily not remember it. I sure as shit did not remember this before rewatching it. You never see her except from the back, and she's in a, a nurse uniform. But what we are definitely meant to see is that she's black. Yes, that's the whole point. The whole point is to tell yep. us. That Tarantino's character is married to a black woman. Right. Because that then makes it okay that he talks the it's way he does. It's so fucked Yeah, it's stupid. <laughs> it's stupid. And you know what? If it, if, 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 if it had been a, a, an actor who I enjoyed and thought was good, who knows? Maybe I would feel differently about that. But as it is, it's the whole, it's just, yeah, it's so fucked up. You want, you want, I'm going to go really deep into my stoner Quentin Tarantino thought. The Dusty Springfield song, and you're talking about people not knowing if she was black or not when they played it on the radio, the whole blue-eyed soul thing. His first interaction with Marcellus Wallace's wife, who we know is black, is they can't see each other and it's through a speaker and then it's revealed to be Uma Thurman. And I always wonder, is that why he used that song? Because it's in that same world of black and white. And I think he might think about these things or 
I'm just going wait, way so too wait, deep. I, I got it. confused because I think you said Marcellus Wallace's wife, who we know is black. No, he's saying we know Marcellus Wallace who we is black. Ass- Sorry, oh, oh okay, okay, right, 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 right. Okay. But, and we can assume maybe his wife is black. So then he does the intercom okay. thing, and then it's revealed to be Uma Thurman in a... Um, in a wig from wig. Uh, I forgot what the movie is. It's a it's a um, <laughs> Truffaut movie or a Godard. I don't know. It's one of those. It's, it's like a famous wig in a reference. Yeah. And she shows up, and you're like, oh, he's married to a white woman. And then you're like, oh, Dusty Springfield is really white. You know what? <laughs> I totally would believe it. Like, like that's that's the kind of yeah, like sure. <laughs> mind fuckery that I suspect is happening in Quentin Tarantino's head. Is this the perfect movie soundtrack or you also have the choice of is the soundtrack better than the movie? Is the movie better than the soundtrack or do they need each other so much they can't live without each other and it's the perfect movie soundtrack? Heather, do you want to go first? I, I have uh, a weird answer to this, I, I think. I, I think, think it would be hard not to have a kind of weird answer. Okay. I'm I, think my, I think mine's weird I as well. I feel really uh, apprehensive about this answer. I think that it is actually the perfect movie soundtrack. Oh, no. <laughs> really? <laughs> Folks, wow. that's and, the end of our podcast. <laughs> we found and, it. We're done. And <laughs> I think search is over. I think that they deserve each other. Well, they do. They do. I think that they are perfectly built to support one another. I do not enjoy what comes out in the end as a result, but I think they're a perfect couple. Like, they're not a couple I want to invite to my dinner party, but I know that that marriage is going to last. All right, Joshua, what do you think? You know, the way, I, I wasn't going to say it quite that way, but the win when you, so when you worded it, is that the perfect movie soundtrack, my thought was, no. But then when you said, which one's better, and or do they deserve each other, I think that's how you phrased it. To which I have to say, yeah, they do deserve each other. And if that's what makes it the perfect movie soundtrack, then yes, I have to say it's the perfect movie soundtrack. But I don't want to say that because I will, I'm going to add my own stipulation to this and ask the question, if one of the things is not perfect, is it still the perfect movie soundtrack? Mm-hmm. I don't think this movie is is. It's 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 great in certain ways. It's an important film. It, it's part of movie history. But I mean, it's definitely nowhere near. I'm, I'm probably never going to see it again. I think that's pretty safe to say. Um, and I'm fine with that. I, it's a problematic film in a lot of ways, in my opinion. So, do I want to crown it as as the with the highest um, award in the in the world, like the Nobel Prize, is which is what we're giving films. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not ready to do that. So I'm not going to go as emphatic as Heather, but I do m- basically agree okay. that they are in perfect. Uh, they 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 live together. So we have a yes and a yes, but no. <laughs> what do you think, Matt? So I went into this being like, yeah, it's fucking Pulp Fiction soundtrack. This is the perfect movie soundtrack. Came out thinking, no, it's not. And I will tell you why. And I'm gonna I'm going to go with the choosing the um, 
the option of which is better. Okay. I think Love it. I think not because of the merit of these songs. I think the movie is better because wow. I think you can re Yeah, I did not expect this either. I think <laughs> if someone gave you this as a mixtape or a soundtrack to listen to, it's got some cool 70s hits, but it's half surf rock. And I feel like do I if my friend was like, "Yo, I made you a mixtape." I was like, "You went a little on the heavy on the surf rock, dude." There's like five <laughs> surf rock songs. In here. That's a good point. <laughs> and there's no like lyrics; they're instrumentals, which is a weird choice. So that kind of hurts the soundtrack. But I think the surf rock, the movie reinvents the surf rock, and the movie gives surf rock like new meaning. So those work perfectly together on that. But I think you can take Preacher Man. Girl, You'll Be a Woman, the twist song, I think you can find hits that are in that little pocket that he's hitting. Like a cool number 170 song that's either like a sexy sultry song or a 50s twist song. There's like a hundred of those. And if it wasn't the Chuck Berry one, I bet you can get by with the movie and the dance scene just as iconic if you picked one of those. If you picked the Fats Domino song, you know, something like that. And then I also would go to the fact that the Dusty Springfield song, that is a great amazing song that i really love but i think you can hit a, any song there in that scene okay i think you're right about it being to like many of these songs being totally interchangeable yeah uh, i can see that so we got a yes a no and uh joshua is a yes but no i think this might be the first time that we've had three different answers it might even be the first time we haven't yeah. had only one answer uh i think you might be right yeah Fuck, that pisses me off. That is an, it's annoying that Tarantino made us think enough to have different thoughts. Right. So our our next uh our next movie, I believe Joshua, it's your pick, is it not? It is. It is. Are you are you I forgot uh, about do this? Know, do you know what Matt and I I do are, are um, doing with you? I've been debating uh for a while um for my entire life what this choice would be <laughs> uh, i'd like to thank my family for their support and god for being god no, oh god um, i have not told my family about this podcast yet i <laughs> you're really I, ready for that oscar speech joshua i, I know I, I was weighing a couple different ones and i think what just solidified there's a couple things that I'm weighing in this choice. One is that I think I I think that we're we've we've I feel like we're kind of stuck in an era, and I know we're going to continue mm. to return to this era a lot. So I very consciously wanted to get out of this era and go yeah. to something if, else. If you need me to expand my timeline, Joshua, <laughs> I'm, on it. I, I'm sure you, you would love to do that. And um, I'll, and then um, so I had a couple choices, and then when. Matt, when you're making the point, the phrase you used about how the films, I think you said the songs in Pulp Fiction were somewhat inconsequential. I wrote that word down. I think that's a word you meant, said, which is the idea that it could be mm -hmm. other songs. The beginning of this film starts with a film with a song that the film is literally directed to. So it's completely consequential. It the, the the film wouldn't even exist without the song because the film is made to the song. So and I wanted to go super recent. So I'm picking Baby Driver. Wow. <gasps> Oh, it's a song that is, it's a movie that is very much about the soundtrack. It, and it, yeah. opens, it opens with one of my favorite all time songs and one of my favorite all time song scenes. John Spencer the blues opening, explosion one. Yep. The opening oh, scene yeah. is written. Every single shot is written to the song. So it's talk about consequential. It's literally could not be made without 
the song. You couldn't put another song in there. Do you know? That's a great choice, Joshua. Thank you. I look forward. Can to Can I just say why I like this choice, again. Joshua? Because you are just throwing yes. down the gauntlet and saying the movie soundtrack is not dead; it lives on. There he is. Hey, hey baby. Why is he listening to music all the time? He had an accident when he was a kid. He still got a hum in the drum. Plays music to drown it out. That's what makes him the best. Mysterious. Maybe. Thanks for listening. We've been enjoying hearing from you on the socials, so come hang out with us on Twitter or Instagram. And we'd really appreciate it if you'd tell your friends about us. Maybe you're enjoying what you're hearing and you think they would too, or maybe you hate it and you want to annoy them. Either way, let them know. Wait, wait, I gotta start the song over. Okay, go. Baby, you tell me who dies. No, I'm driving. For Matt and Heather, this is Joshua, and we'll see you in two weeks with another episode of The Perfect Movie Soundtrack.